Welcome to Seeding Transformation in the 2020s. This event is organized by the Transition and Social Change Group at the University of Technology, Sydney. We are a burgeoning group of staff and students reflecting on transformation processes that may lead to more just and sustainable futures. Before we begin today's discussion, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast today. The Garigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of this land we now call Sydney and pay my respects to the elders, both past, present, and emerging. My name is Juan, and I'm a PhD student working in the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. I am the facilitator of this conversation. We want all of you to be part of this dialogue, so if you have a question for our panelists, please leave it in the chat. We will round up some of these questions and ask them at the end of the session. We will also hold a post-panel reflection session. So if you want to stay for that, it will be great. We want you to share your perspectives on transformation, especially find out problem spaces and opportunity spaces for transformation in your local contexts. The Transition and Social Change Group started to put this event together as a response to the devastating bushfire season experience in Australia this past summer. I guess uh, people outside from Australia uh, saw this in the news. We saw this as a clear sign of the, that the climate crisis is happening here and now. It's very real and is immediate. So we were going to hold a physical event here in Sydney, but the COVID-19 situation led us to cancel that encounter and move this dialogue to the virtual space that we are uh, right now. So it's kind of very clear signs of uh, this crisis society emerging. We see this as a great opportunity to reach a global audience and possibly establish a flexible network of change makers around the world. Today, we want to share with you some promising theories of change that can allow us to better facilitate transformations. We're all about transdisciplinarity, so we will be learning about transformations from different perspectives. This means that we will use the terms transformation, social change, and transition interchangeably sometimes. The purpose of this first encounter is to find possibilities for integration between approaches and kickstart a network effort for just and sustainable change. We want to empower change makers with knowledge so that they go on to plant transformation seeds in their immediate context. The still unfolding COVID-19 crisis has clearly exposed the insufficiencies of our systems to deal with extreme stresses. Countries both in the global north and south haven't been able to provide enough protection for healthcare workers. We see the heartbreaking struggles of people who live paycheck to paycheck or survive from daily earnings in the global south. And even multi-million dollar corporations cannot survive more than a few months without earnings. This moment of crisis is frightening and stressful, but it also brings great promise for positive change. As J.D. Gambuto puts it, it is the great pause, a moment that allows us to reflect on our current ways of life and imagine a better world. Citing Arundhati Roy, the pandemic is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. But it can go both ways. On the one hand, nationalism, fascism, and stronger surveillance systems are emerging around the world. 
On the other hand, grassroots solidarity, empathy, and a rewilding of cities appear to emerge very quickly. We want to bring forth more just and sustainable futures, but how can we design and facilitate these processes? We are joined today by three researchers who will give us some clues about how to achieve positive transformations. A warm welcome to our panelists, Dr. Liam Pham, Dr. Chris Reedy, and Dr. Cameron Tompkin-Weiss. Lien is a senior lecturer in the Graduate Research School at the University of Technology, Sydney. Her research interests and publications are in the areas of education and human development, civil society participation, public policy, and social justice. Theoretically, she is informed by sociology, critical theory, and political philosophy. She also provides policy-focused research consultancy and evaluation for government organizations and multilateral organizations. Welcome, Lien. Chris is Professor of Sustainability Governance and Director of Graduate Research at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's a transdisciplinary academic with a research interest in governance, communication, and social change for sustainable futures. Chris draws on sociological and political theory, narrative theory, and futures thinking to design, facilitate, and evaluate practical experiments in transformative change towards sustainable futures. He coordinates the Institute's work on sustainability transformations and is lead steward of the Transforming Narratives Network for the SDG Transformations Forum. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Juan. Hi, everyone. And Cameron is the director of the Design Innovation Research Center at UTS. He returned to Australia after being the director of design studies and doctoral studies at Carnegie Mellon University School of Design and the Associate Dean Sustainability at Parsons, the new school for design, and co-chair of the Tishman Environment and Design Center at the New, York, new School of, in New York City. Cameron has a background in continental philosophy and continues to research what design practice can learn from material, cultural studies, and sociologies of technology. His primary area of research and teaching is sustainable design. Cameron is widely published on the ways in which service design can advance social sustainability by decoupling use and ownership, what these days is referred to as the sharing economy. He has also been a strong advocate for the importance of critical practice-based design research. Cameron's current focus in collaboration with colleagues at CMU and, international, and an international network of scholar practitioners is transition design. This is design-enabled multi-level, multi-stage structural change towards more sustainable futures. Welcome, Cameron. And thank you all for joining us today. So my first question draws from our recent YouGov poll in the UK that showed that only 9% of people want life to return to normal after this pandemic. The poll shows that people see the environmental benefits of slowing down and seem to have a stronger sense of community. The Innovation Foundation, Nesta, also in the UK, stated recently that the Overton window is now more likely an Overton greenhouse. So the previous unimaginable is now possible regarding policy. In this crucial moment for real structural change, I want to ask you what needs to be changed so that we can move to more just and sustainable futures. Chris, are you jumping in? You want me to go first? Yeah. <laughs> um, Thanks, Juan, and, and great to see everyone here. It's uh, great to talk about transformations and uh, transitions. Um, so I guess the, 
my quick answer to the first part of that question of what needs to be changed is that everything needs to change. Our, our behaviours, our economic system, our values, our deep stories and narratives. So you know, we often talk about um, you know, how technology needs to change or, or social systems or institutions, but I think equally um, our cultures, our, our, our values, our, our stories also need to change. Um, but to go a bit deeper into what needs to change, since, since 2013, I've been part of a community of transformation scholars and practitioners that has, has tried to tackle some of these questions. And, and this started with, um, back in 2013, the first conference on transformation in a changing climate uh, that was held in Oslo. And then there's been a, a transformations conference every two years since then. There's been four of them so far. And there the the participants have all been about trying to work out well what what does need to transform but also how do you go about transformation and um more specifically in in 2017 we began a process to set up an organization called the sdg transformations forum and at the start of that process what we did was ask transformation scholars that were involved in these conferences and networks what did they see as the the deep challenges that were pre preventing transformation towards sustainable and flourishing futures. So the, the biggest, the main challenges that need to need some change. And we came up with six, and there's probably more, but um, these six are pretty challenging as it is. So let's, let's start with them. Um, the first is capacity. We need lots and lots of people that are skilled at transformations processes, that are skilled change agents, that um, can use action research, that have kind of the tools and skills to, to lead and facilitate transformations processes. Second is evaluation. Um, right now, the way that we evaluate projects, um, particularly in, in context in the global south, uh, is very, it's very much driven by how the, the money is spent rather than what we actually get out of those projects, what is actually delivered. So we need better ways of evaluating projects and, and how transformation happens that are um, more geared to work towards where we want to actually get to. Um, the financing system, so economics, we need to change the way our financing system works. We need to find ways to finance transformation processes, which are often very open-ended and so not that attractive to funders because it's very hard to say at the start what sort of transformation is going to be delivered and even if it actually will be. Um, governance was the fourth area, so the whole broken democratic system, trying to re-inject democracy into it, trying to improve um, our policy-making processes to make them more participatory. The fifth was innovation, so transforming our innovation system so that we have the ideas, the, um, the initiatives that can deliver transformation. And the final one, which is the one I've been doing the most work on, was narrative. So the deep stories, the, the narratives, the memes that uh, underlie our sense of, of what's right and proper and normal behaviour and the way the world works and should work. And right now, those deep stories and narratives don't line up well with um, a sustainable and flourishing future and they actually are working against it. So we need to transform that as well. So that's... That's a pretty big challenge, those six areas. And what we've been trying to do through the forum is build networks that are, are tackling each of those. Um, 
the challenges in each of those areas are pretty different, but there is some common ground. And one of the things that we see as one of the biggest challenges is that there's lots of people working around the world on all of those issues and trying to facilitate positive transformation, but they're not well connected with each other. They're not learning from each other. They're not part of a system at the moment. Sometimes they're reinventing the wheel. Sometimes they're even competing with each other. Um, certainly it's a fragmented effort. So perhaps the biggest challenge we face is finding ways to coordinate all of those wonderful efforts into more powerful transformation systems um, that can overcome, you know, the, the substantial inertia and, and lock in and ideological commitments that hold us in the current system. So that's been about understanding what's going on at the moment. So a kind of seeing or sense making process and then starting to connect up the many initiatives that are going on and then experimenting with, with radical actions to actually um, attempt transformation, evaluate it and learn from it. Chris. So does another panelist have uh Do you want me to say it next? Or? Okay. Well, <laughs> well, um, um, hi everyone and thanks a lot for inviting me to this um, panel today. Um, so in relation to the first question that you were posing um, about the structural change and what needs to be changed. Um, so my work is around inequality. So I'm kind of framing this around that issue. And I wanna say that um, before we think about what needs to be changed, and I'm gonna draw on the current situation of the COVID-19 and its impacts on all of us um, to, to sort of frame that, is that we are experiencing a staggering amount or staggering levels of inequality. And that has been increasing in Australia and elsewhere in the world. And, um, you know, for developing, for developing countries that is trying to emerge out of, you know, the developing status into the developed world, um, that is, has always been happening, for example, in the case of China or Vietnam, etc. But in the case of developed worlds like Australia, you know, where, where we are at a level of rather prosperity and to sort of be experiencing economic inequality or income inequality or even health inequality, although the health inequality aspect is probably a, a little bit um, better in Australia, say, compared to the US. But, that, but those inequalities are preconditions to the COVID-19 situations and the impact it has. And what we see as a result of that is the people at the bottom end or the working class, shall we say, the more vulnerable people are seeing or feeling the burden of the COVID-19 more so than the people, you know, um, that are wealthier or, you know, have more white-collar jobs, etc. So I think when we talk about change and what needs to be changed, we have to think about the preconditions to what that change could be. So, you know, um, um, I hear what Chris was saying about, you know, the transformation, the change. And yes, there are theories of change that talks about how do we move from A to B? So we map out, we say what Bs are, right? What are the desired outcomes that we map out? Um, that could be one way of looking at it. But I think uh, a deeper way of actually recognizing what are the things that can make those changes actually happen is to realize what the preconditions are. So I'm in the space of educational inequalities. I'll talk about what that might look like. 
So inequality in education, you know, typically is about whether or not people can access the education. Um, and we have in Australia the very strange situation of, you know, at the general schooling level of the private education and the public education. Um, and we also see the results or the performance or, you know, entries into universities that are very differential between people that that go to private school versus people that go to public school. And we see that in terms of their, you know, there's a higher number of people from the private sector, uh, private school sector, that then access universities and so forth. In relation to universities, um, the stories has also been about increasing access and getting people in through the door. And that comes from, you know, you say Julia Gillard, sort of demand driven, you know, as, as soon as, as long as you want to access universities, you can. But the inequality happens while you are at universities, and that is not everybody participates in the education in the same way, which means that there are different people who retain or stays within the systems and, you know, those people that drop out. So the question that we have to ask is, it's not only about access, but it's also about who is being selected to enter education and who is staying in the systems and who can complete education. So, you know, that's, um, that's some of the things that I've been working on in terms of what I call education justice, like improving education, you know, in justice and so forth. The other thing that but, you know, I do want to say that part of the reason why our education is seeing an increasing level of inequality is partly because education is, you know, becoming more and more neoliberal. And that is we are now seeing education as a, as a commodity that we are selling. We are seeing it as a service to be consumed as opposed to a public good that people can access. So in that, you know, um, you know, we are saying, we are seeing education as an input and jobs and employment as an output, as opposed to what can education do to improve the lives and the well-being of people. So I think that's another way that, um, that is another thing that needs to be changed. Um, I also think that the culture, and this is something that Chris talked about before, is that, you know, we, um, one of the change is that we have to have a culture that is more of belonging. So how do I, who am I, and how do I belong in the community, and what can I do to contribute and belong to that community? So I'm talking about the issue of citizenship here, and the culture of mattering. So do I matter? How do I matter? Do you matter? as opposed to, you know, the survival of the fittest, which is a neoliberal impact or effects of education, is that, yeah, you go in and you go out and the best will have the best jobs. But, you know, there are varying factors that affect job access and education access and, and that kind of things. And, the, and the, the last thing I'm going to say about structural change is sustainability. So I do think that now I'm talking about sustainability, not just in terms of environmental, but sustainability in terms of how can we sustain whatever practice that we are doing in the longer term. And I don't think you can do that if there are increasing inequality because soon, you know, it, it's a sort of dog is dog kind of game. And so somebody will collapse, somebody will fall, and it's always the people at the bottom. So that to me is not sustainable. So I'm saying that, you know, um, the change has to be a focus on sustainability, but that sustainability has to come from an improving of equality, um, whether or not it's access, participation, or completion, whatever, you know, job sectors or education sectors. So I'll leave it at that.
Thank you. Was there a question about challenges? Or is that the next question? Sorry. No worries. We'll, we'll, we'll hear if Cameron has something to say around uh, this structural change that is needed. Uh, okay, thanks Juan and uh, hello everybody and, and thanks for coming to this today. Um, I, I think uh, just listening to Chris's answer, you know, I'm, I'm to some extent with him that obviously in relation to the unsustainability of our societies, which also is concerning their inequity, everything needs to change. And that I think calling out words like transitional transformation are an attempt to signal uh, larger types of change than the type of reformism that we've tended to have dominate uh, a lot of our, our political responses, whether to inequity or unsustainability to date. We've kind of had reformist. And the only other kind of challenging model or theory of change is, is kind of revolution. Uh, and um, you know, I'm still kind of thinking that actually might be the only one that's gonna work. Um, obviously, transition or transformation signals uh, uh, the requirement that everything change, but hopefully change in some kind of managed way. Uh, and then I'm hesitant to use that word. I think it's uh, only being used metaphorically because if it was not being used metaphorically, it would mean the continuance of a kind of neoliberalism associated with managerialism. And that's exactly what we're trying to manage our way out of. So it becomes the paradox of managing yourself out of managerialism. I think the question that seems to occur to me between these two responses so far is yes, everything needs to change, but you can't change everything at once. And so then it becomes a tactical question about which changes to do first. So a lot of transition management um, uh, subscribes to a theory of change known as multi-level perspective, meaning you need to engage in multiple levels of change simultaneously, but you also need to do that over multiple phases. So it's never just we are in situation A, there is situation B, let's just design. It's not even, I think, uh, a three horizon model where in the current horizon, we wanna to get to the third horizon and there's a transitional second horizon. I think the kind of models of change that transition design are interested, that transition management is teaching transition design, argue that it needs to be multiple phase changes and multiple levels and that part of the theory of change is to find ways of linking up different levels in different contexts. Nevertheless, one of the reasons why I think I and my colleagues have been interested to bring design to this question, because design, of course, throughout the 20th century has been primarily a service industry with a quite servile attitude on behalf of some of the most unsustainable aspects of corporate capitalism and, and global consumerism. Uh, so it's kind of uh, ironic to try and, and bring design to the question of major change. Same kind of paradox with managerialism. Uh, can we in fact design ourselves out of uh, a system, uh, a network system that is remarkably resilient that has in fact been designed, that uh, designers have contributed to establishing? Uh, doesn't need to be a quite different type of designing, is it still designing if you're trying to design yourself out of the design 20th century and its unsustainabilities. Nevertheless, if you just put aside those paradoxes, one of the key reasons to bring design to a conversation like this around transformation is to signal uh, a commitment to a belief that material 
conditions, material practices, everyday practices, kind of routines and habits that are facilitated by uh, everyday products and environments, that these are both defining of what holds the current system in place and essential starting points. And so just to kind of tease out what this might mean in a slight kind of negotiation, uh, obviously Chris and I work together, but one would say if one is wanting to change narratives, uh, from a design point of view, narratives are always to some extent materialized. So the chicken egg here is, you know, where are the communication designers facilitating the media in which those stories will be disseminated, will be interacted with, will be engaged, will be appropriated? Uh, what are the material conditions? What kinds of stories can't be told in current media? How do you need to innovate different kinds of material conditions to allow different types of stories? Uh, or more so, that uh, if one is going to engage in significant value worldview shifting, to some extent, uh, those worldviews um, can be held, uh, to be slightly controversially, hypocritically in your head whilst your practices do something completely different. We understand with many religions, they might be committed to a certain kind of humanist equality, and yet they're actually engaged in uh, pursuing certain, uh, um, you know, quite selfish modes of prosperity, just to signal something a little too close to the bone, perhaps. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's possible to say that, uh, that to some extent, whatever your values, whatever your mentalist values are, is possibly irrelevant or at best secondary to the material routines and habits. <clears throat> or to put it as a theory of change, that in some situations it's possible to change habits which lead to a change in mindsets. And that's a controversial claim. And transition design is built on the hypothesis that changing material conditions at everyday levels uh, is something that would enable the beginning of transitions that would flow through and change whole systems. Always chicken and egg, because then, you know, the conditions in which designers actually get to change material conditions, even though they're let's say smaller in scale, are heavily indebted to economic structures, corporate capitalism and all the inequalities associated with it and the dominant forces of neoliberalism that might measure those uh, things and have expectations of them. So it becomes one of those, those, those questions of how to begin to do a transformation. I think, you know, part of the thing that I'm trying to advocate is that designers have been fairly timid for uh, at least uh, 50 years, um, even in kind of dominant Western forms of designing. They've been rather timid with respect to their agency, but there's a lot more agency there um, than I think uh, designers care to admit, because if they admitted it, it would make them a lot more responsible. So I think there's agency there. I think there is uh, uh, contributions to theories of change that can come from a really underrepresented discourse and profession like design with its attention to material conditions. And so everything needs to change, but it begins by changing those material conditions and creating an experience of different habits and routines. And to kind of finish in a way, I think um, uh, this might be contradicting the point I made, but under the current conditions, we have been exposed if we are in conditions of privilege, we've been exposed to the possibility of other, other everyday types of uh, habits and routines. 
Um, I'm not sure we had really good ones that we'd want to carry forward, but we have been exposed to the fact that a lot of what we were doing uh, had the only justification being that it was how things were done. And now we are experiencing other types of habits and practices. Uh, and I'm not sure these habits and practices are the ones we want to continue, but they do open us up to the possibility that um, we, can, we can have further change to those material practices. Great, thank you. Yeah, so I guess it's, uh, this structural change has to deal with the whole system. And going back to uh, the colonial scholars, and transmodern scholars, they refer to the system as, as you know, patriarchal, capitalist, neoliberal, industrialist, productivist. Um, yeah, so, so there's kind of definitions floating around of what that system entails. Cameron, you were actually mentioning uh, theories of change. So there are, there's a wealth of knowledge regarding these transformations at a societal level and we have kind of an understanding of what needs to be changed but we want to touch in, in this call briefly on three major strands of deep change with each of our panelists so i, I want to start with chris uh, chris you have explored the power of narratives in shaping our behavior and enabling or constraining change what are narratives and why do they matter for transformation Yeah, well, I, I, I can't tackle that question without now responding to Cameron, I think, because the, um, the question of whether material change has to come first and precede narrative change is, um, is a question of whether narratives do actually matter. And I'm probably not, while I'm, I am, I'm sympathetic to the view that material change probably does drive uh, to some extent, narrative change, but I also think narrative change has its own momentum, and that that's quite a recursive relationship between um, cultural change, narrative change, and um, and material change. Um, but you know, thinking through, well, I guess I, I should answer the question of what, why, what are narratives? Um, uh, why do they matter for transformation? So, a, a narrative. Um, you know, there's a lot of confusion in the literature about what narratives actually are, which I've been trying to, um, in recent work, clarify a little bit. And essentially a narrative is just, a, it's a deep story. Um, and we're all familiar with stories. We've grown up being told stories. We, we see stories in the media all the time, in our entertainment. And a story is just a form of communication that's, that's got a particular structure to it. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end. There's some sort of plot or energy or change that moves things along in that story. There's characters that experience this plot. Um, and we, our brains have evolved to think in stories. Our brains make sense of the world and, and we transmit information to others using stories. So we're constantly immersed in this story landscape that does influence our behavior, often subconsciously. And some of the, and, and of course the, 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 the infrastructure, the media, the material world that is available to tell stories is going to influence what kind of stories are told, like Cameron was saying. And so, you know, we've got um, in, in the last 30 years, the new technology of the internet, 
enabling different kinds of stories to be told than what were told in the, the era of the novel, for example. Um, and that, that's going to have an influence and, and the, the rise of social media and um, the ability of people to more easily connect with people all around the world is, is leading to different kinds of stories as well. So the material shapes, shapes the story world. Um, but you know, we've got this set of, of really dominant narratives right now that aren't fit for purpose and haven't necessarily caught up with where the technology has got to and the material world has got to and are actively working against transformation. So uh, thinking about neoliberal capitalism, which values growth in GDP above everything else and assumes we're all competitors and individuals and that the um, world's actually gonna be better because of that, because if we compete, we'll get the best outcomes and that will trickle down to everyone. Uh, government should get out of the way of all of that so that markets and private interests can deliver the prosperity for all. And I guess even underlying that kind of narrative is a, is a deeper and older narrative of, of our, our separation from nature, our dominance over nature, which justifies continuing to exploit the natural world. Um, Charles Eisenstein calls it a story of separation. Uh, and that narrative is failing us even before the current coronavirus crisis, you could say that um, certainly neoliberal capitalism was delivering ecological destruction, widening inequity, um, which Leanne has talked about, um, but also sluggish economies. It wasn't even delivering on its own terms. It's not delivering the, the sort of um, strong economic growth that it claims to deliver. Um, it's certainly not delivering the trickle down um, in improvement in equity that um, some claim it would. And in the current crisis, as Lien talked about a bit, it's become even more apparent that the, the story of small government, of government getting out of the way, has, has led to erosion of our healthcare system and our social protections um, that we rely on in times like this. And we're seeing that um, perhaps less so in Australia where we've escaped the worst impacts, but certainly in other parts of the world. And that, that narrative is inescapable. It's all around us. It's continually being reproduced by powerful actors. It's, you know, if a politician talks about economic stimulus, it reinforces the idea that the economy is something separate out there that we need to look after. It's got this momentum of its own. It's about the GDP growing. It's not about anything like human well-being. It's the economy. It must grow. Um, the media reports the latest GDP figures on the nightly news and and you know you keep hearing that and you think well that must be important that must mean something even though gdp measures bad things as well as good things and and there's no evidence beyond a certain point that it relates in any way to happiness um, and we hear terms like tax relief that make us feel like tax is a burden that we need to get rid of rather than an investment in being well prepared for crises like the one that we're facing or or we hear people talking about um streamlining approval processes to get rid of some of the environmental green tape that um, we could otherwise frame as, as important de democratic and participatory scrutiny of, of projects to make sure they actually make sense as being something we should do. So all around us is this framing that, that continues to create that story and continues to have us seeing as normal that we're separate from nature, that we're dominant over nature, that our role is to serve the economy that must continue to grow. And, uh, and that shapes what we do um, to, some, to at least some extent. 
And so we can't transform to a sustainable future without also transforming those narratives. And some of the elements of, of what could make up an alternative narrative with the power to challenge neoliberal capitalism are emerging, things like a, um, certainly a sustainable but also a regenerative relationship with nature because there's a lot of damage that's been done to the earth that we need to um, repair and help nature to repair. Um, seeing ourselves not as competitive individuals but as people that are cooperative and entangled with each other. We're all in this together and we're seeing some of that kind of language emerging in, in the response to COVID. Um, and a focus on human dignity and well-being and social and economic justice and plurality and diversity rather than being our goals rather than this um, abstract idea of GDP. Um, so that there's a lot of contestation over what new narrative, what a new narrative or multiple new narratives might look like. But in, in that common ground, it's what Charles Eisenstein calls a story of interbeing, um, recognising that we're nature and we are cooperative social beings. We're not separate from nature and we're not separate from each other. Chris, I'm drawing from those emerging narratives that are contesting this big meta-narrative. How, how do narratives change? Could you give us an example of ethical transformative storytelling? Well, that's the hard bit. Um, I, I, you know, narratives change all the time and have, we've had um, many different narratives over the course of human civilization. And in hindsight, you can identify them. It's very, very hard to identify them as they're changing and it's very hard to proactively change narratives as well. But I guess the, the simple answer is that narratives change when a better, more compelling story comes along that makes better sense of the world for enough people. Um, so people then start telling stories that are consistent with that narrative. They start acting in ways that align with that narrative. Um, they start building a material world that embeds that narrative and it, and it starts to spread. And most of the time that's an organic process, but our challenge now is to be much more proactive about that. And so that of course becomes a political process and there's, um, there's powerful interests that are continuing to tell and defend the story of neoliberal capitalism and to undermine alternatives whenever they try and um, raise their head because it benefits their personal interest to do so. And so there's, there's questions of power that come into this. Um, and I think change is also made difficult because, and this is a bit of a, a, a um, dilemma, uh, that there's so many alternative movements and so many alternative stories, it's so fragmented that there's all this competition to be the new narrative and somehow we need to harness the strength of that diversity but still find enough common ground to, to act together in a way that's powerful enough to challenge the um, existing status quo. But I guess there's, there's things to learn from how neoliberal capitalism itself became dominant. It, there was quite a strategic approach to that. There was a meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society in Switzerland in 1947. And people involved in that did quite a lot of work um, to get into the business schools around the world, to teach a neoliberal economic agenda, to get to the people that were gonna be future leaders, um, politicians, business elites, and promote the ideas of neoliberalism quite consciously and to the extent that it became quite dominant by the 1980s. 
So you can employ a conscious strategy to bring about narrative change. And, you know, they used, they promoted particular forms of measurement like GH, GDP. They used clever framing like tax relief that I talked about before. Um, but that strategy, we don't want to mimic that kind of strategy because it was very much an elite strategy. It was very successful, but it's, um, you know, they didn't go out and ask anyone what sort of new narratives do you want? They said, we're going to do this and imposed it top down. Um, so we certainly need a political strategy, but I wouldn't suggest it would look anything like the neoliberal strategy. In fact, it has to be consistent with the, the nature of the narratives that it's trying to promote. So it needs to be cooperative and participatory and plural and regenerative. Um, and, you know, when Cameron talked about revolution before, I, I, I'm tempted to think that, you know, at, at the very least, we need a very broad citizens movement that may be engaged in civil disobedience and activism uh, to provide the power to overturn um, neoliberal capitalism. Um, and so the trick is, how do you find enough common ground across the many different progressive transformative movements so that they can act in concert, in symphony, um, but not sort of flatten the really, really valuable plurality and diversity that needs to be part of that movement. Um, there was an ethical part to your question as well. And, and you know, the, the neoliberals didn't ask anyone if they wanted neoliberal capitalism. We need to be careful not to fall into the, the same trap. It's, it's very easy to say, hey, I've got the new narrative. I'm going to go out and promote that. And without listening to people, creates potentially a whole new set of problems um, for folks out there. And so we really need to find ways to involve everyone in generating new narratives from the bottom up. Um, so for me, it needs a, a grassroots process, a process of movement building that's going to empower people to, to tell their own stories and um, weave them together into a, a powerful movement. Thank you, Chris. Leanne, I wanted to touch on uh, the theory of social practices with you. So many deep change processes are focused on transforming social practices. Could you explain a little bit what that entails? Um, so uh, there are, first I want to say that there are many theories of um, social practices, okay? So I'm going to say it from a social theories perspective or a sociological perspective because that's where I'm located in. And just, um, just to make it simplistic, there are two, um, two, two aspects or two domains of which social theorists are concerned about when they talk about um, practices. And that is the issue of structure and agency. And you've seen that words being used already in um, across all of the um, all of our responses. So um, there's a structure. I just want to clarify or define structures from a social theorist perspective. Um, it can be um, a number of things. So it can be the organisation. So an institution like the school systems, um, the university system, the judicial system. So those or the political um, governance systems. So it can be in terms of that institution, but it can be a neo institutions, which are the the kind of norms or the practices, the the, the normative ways that we go about doing things. Um, uh, the habits, um, the habitual things that we do. So all of those kinds of things also create a structure because it governs and it shapes the way that we do things. 
So that's a very brief definition. Agency, on the other hand, is um, loosely used across different theorists to signify actions. So what do we do? Or practices. But the word agency actually infers or you know, it presupposes the idea that we have free will and we have the autonomy to take the choice to do that action. So in the context of social theories, there's always this dilemma, and I think Cameron talked about that, you know, this paradox between the structure and agency. So some social theorists focus a lot more on the structures. So, you know, what are the structures that governs the way we do, that determines the way we do? And there are social theorists that, that are focusing more on the agency. So, you know, um, what are our freedoms? What are our choices and what we can do? So it depends when your, um, where your emphasis is. So I'll give you one example of uh, a sociologist, um, and that's Pierre Bourdieu. And many of you may have heard of um, him. And I'm just gonna sort of talk about how this structure and agency and how he employs um, that and what we can do with that in relation to thinking about change. So for Bourdieu, um, his theory of practice, so this is not theory of social practices, but theory of practice. Practice is a singular as a noun. Um, sometimes we hear it as the theory of habitus or habitus, however you want to pronounce it. And essentially, Bourdieu defines habitus um, as, a, um, as a system or a structure. And, and that is something that comes from our past practices. So our historical, our upbringing, our educational experiences, our family, our work. So the things that we've done in the past um, that then shape the way that we are doing things currently, our current practices. So we come into every situation with those past practices and those past practices create what is called a system of disposition or an inclination to do certain things. So we don't do just things in a, you know, in, in, like in a vacuum. We are doing things with an inclination and that inclination is built on the prior practices that informs the current practices and it continues so. Um, so habitus happens all the time. I have my habitus, I'm engaging with you, I'm engaging with everybody here. And through all our intersections or interactions of habitus, we produce um, a certain set of dispositions. So in, in effect, our habitus doesn't just simply govern or determine the way that we do, but as we engage in the current actions, we could change that habitus. So here comes the issues between structure and agency. It is although a structure may seem as something very deterministic because it governs the way that we approach certain things, but if we are conscious of that habitus, then we also have the, the, the choice or the agency to reshape that habitus. And that's why I think the ideas of change come from, and I'll sort of talk about that in a little while. But the things, but the, some of the elements of habitus that is useful for thinking in terms of what change could happen or how it can happen is the idea of values. So habitus, our educational background, our family, informs our value sets, our worldviews, so our readings, whatever else. So from that value set, it informs our goals, what we think is worthwhile in doing. Why do we go to university? What do you think? Why am I engaging this panel here? It's based on a set of values. And that set of values informs our goals. And our goals, we then set or we create. But at the same time, we could also follow the goals that other people have set. 
So that's kind of like policies, right? Or the institutional structures or whatever. Um, in addition to that, the habitus also constructs our responsibility, which is like our moral obligations. So who do I owe my morality to? And from our, my moral sets, what are my responsibility? So for example, in a neoliberal context or in a capitalist context, we might say that it's totally individual freedom, which means we owe our responsibility to nobody else but us. Um, you know, in a communitarian kind of context, we could say that we owe responsibility to the people that are around us, to the community, because we don't see ourselves as simply purely, purely individuals, but we see ourselves as our identity as part of the community. So that's kind of like the habitus. It drives our values, it shapes our goals, um, it informs our sense of moral obligations and our sense of what a community might be. Um, so, so that in some way, that kind of moral values can be imposed on us. So, and that's where the structure comes in. Like we work in an institution, there are rules, there are regulations and it imposes on us a certain way that we do things. But at the same time, we also have a choice of speaking up against that, for example, and that could come through activism or, you know, voicing your concerns or whatever. And again, there's a limit to which, you know, how much you can say and what you can do depends on the institution or the organization or the structure that you exist in. So that's essentially is what the theory of practice is always about, you know, this question of structure and agency and, you know, to what extent do structures um, limit or regulate the way that we behave? And then on the flip side, to what extent do we, as individuals with certain amount of freedom, um, can rise above or can be conscious of, of those structures and how it's influencing or imposing on us? And then we make a choice. We make a choice of whether we do anything about it or we just follow, follow um, those structures and then perpetuate that. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, 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 just to bring in the idea of narrative here and communication. And I just think that, you know, it is in some way a structure. So narratives could be emancipatory or it can create that structure because narrative is the way that we, is through language. So we tell a story, we listen to a story. So it's always about the language that we hear and how we interpret that kind of language. But that kind of language also creates boundaries around what we can say or what we can't do. So, for example, and, you know, we could say, and again, I'm just bringing this to the education because that's the space that I'm in. You know, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, the language that we use in education is very different to the language that we use or the stories that we tell about education now. Education now is clearly, clearly a marketized product that we sell. And if you look at sort of, you know, websites of, you know, universities and so forth, it's really clear there is no longer, you know, a controversy around using the language of education as you know, as input or output, as selling and buying, you know, exchange of knowledge and ideas for the knowledge economy. So it has created this narrative, this story about education for investments or for um, jobs, so much that, 
you know, we're always thinking about education in that way. You ask, you know, all the newcomers to education, why do you, you know, why do you go to universities in order to get a job? Would this um, um, uh, degree or, you know, going to this particular university enable you to get a job? So that's the kind of language and the stories around, um, and that has created a certain set of meanings meanings about education, meanings about what education can do for us. So that is a form of structure. And through our interactions with one another, we've come to sort of internalize and normalize this idea of education for human capital development. Um, and that informs the way then that we engage with education and even value education. So you see the sort of, you know, in the global ranking and you, you sort of see universities say, well, you know, um, we're the top 50 or whatever in terms of graduate employability and that kind of things. So we follow along that narrative and we're, you know, we're informed and even, you know, to some extent determined by that narrative. So I'm saying that narrative is a way or, you know, it's a communication action, but it's also a communication structure that then binds us or bounds us to a certain ways of things. And that's the habitus. So what does that mean for change? It means that we have to recognize those structures and what those structures do for us and how we are subjectified or subjected to those structures in order to make a change or take a choice. Because if we don't, if we see everything as, well, this is the way it is, the political economy is the only way that we can get ourselves out of this, we're not gonna be able to sort of, you know, um, be conscious of what we can do. So the hegemony or the power relations will always be there unless we understand or we recognize or we are conscious that these structures are actually imposing us a set of values um, and then we can entertain the idea whether or not those values align with our values or, you know, or not and choose to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and going back to that uh, agency component, could you tell us how, how do practices change? So could you oh, give right. some examples of change practices and some factors contributing to yeah. those changes? So, you know, just, just what I was saying a minute ago is recognizing the power structures on recognizing the power relations. So we exist um, in relationships with one another and there's never, never, never an equal power position. So in an in a institution where there is a hierarchy and there's bureaucracy, then the layers of powers are a lot more. So the idea of recognizing, you know, what Foucault would say, a genealogy of power relations, we have to recognize that. Otherwise, you know, being the person with less power, the people at the bottom, you will never, never get out of that. Um, and in a certain way, the, the policy of intervention would, would come in. So this is what I was saying about before is, you know, it's very difficult for people with less power or less voice, you know, less political capital or less elitistness um, to be able to come out of that. So the government or policies have to really orientate and focus on improving the power positions of people. And that can only be done through, for example, you know, improving social protections or social support and, and etc. Um, you know, and but we can't just lean on policy interventions. I mean, you look at Australia and that's just not happening, right? So in some way, I'm saying that the agency is also on the individuals to recognize that they also have agency to do so. Um, and, and, you know, 
by by understanding their position and understanding that there is a power structures and that you know they can do something about that. Um, now, in terms of giving you an example, so I'll give you an example. Um, might be the one you want to hear in terms of you know the power of change, but nevertheless, and that is something that is very um, particular at the moment, and that is the move to online learning. So, you know, the online learning movement has been something that has been pushed at universities or, you know, mainly at the higher education level for quite a while now. And that comes from, you know, let's be honest, it comes from the globalization movement. Um, it comes from the idea of lowering the cost of education. It comes from the idea of casualizing academics. So, you know, um, delivering an online course would be somewhat cheaper than doing a face-to-face. -face. So there's all of that. But, you know, there's also about changing to give people access. Um, and that's the argument that many people would say is that by, you know, um, doing things online, many people would have access to that. You could only look at MOOCs courses and you could see that the number of take-ups of these um, short courses has increased. So some of them is 10,000, 20,000. But the reality is the quality of those um, short courses are delivered online don't always mean that everybody can access and learn in an equitable way. So it depends on the habitus, right? It depends on their digital um, literacy. It depends on whether or not their families have the internet or availability and all so forth. And we see that in the debate very recently about schools and online learning and why they you know, some, the government is pushing for people to go back to school or, you know, but the, the parents don't. So that debate about whether or not online learning can actually facilitate authentic quality learning that allows people to engage um, and deeply learn as opposed to, you know, information exchange that actually marginalise people who may or may not engage with that kind of learning in a very fair way. So I'm saying that in relation to thinking about some change practices, we have to be conscious about what it actually means and how it impacts on the people that are accessing that, not purely from a particular ideological standpoint of which, you know, you can really be caught in that neoliberalism sort of, you know, um, trapping or, 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 or story. Um, yeah. Thank you, Lynn. So lastly, uh, Cameron, you, you talked a little bit about transitions design and the role of design in transition processes. But could, could you remind us a little bit uh, what is a transition? Cameron, you're muted. Yes, sorry. Um, I think uh, I was just saying this in, in a small chat room to um, uh, 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 the, the people I was in there with, sorry. One of the reasons why transition management chose the word transition is to uh, borrow, which is always a dangerous thing to do, it always comes with certain baggage, but to borrow from ecosystems, to borrow from ecosystem theory and the nature of transitions uh, as they occur to ecosystems. And the basic premise is that ecosystems are resilient to change so external conditions can change, uh, new species can enter, but they're, they're resilient because of the interconnectivity in them. They have redundancies and interconnectivities that allow them to absorb damage and change, which is why they remain more or less static. But at certain points, some types of change will mean 
that you suddenly get a cascading and a phase change and, and a shift to a completely different ecosystem. Not everything changes, but a lot changes. And it's those same interconnectivities that actually allow the change to flow through. And so as a result, transition as a word signals change that is both gradualist and then rapid and then settles again. And so this is a particular kind of theory of change that suggests that socio-technical regimes are regimes, they kind of lock in, they kind of exist almost uh, with a landscape is the metaphor, there's a kind of landscape there. Landscapes are sort of geological and climactic and they can only tolerate certain types of species in certain types of relations. And that if we want to change the species to some extent, the whole landscape itself has to change. So there's a, that's some of the legacy of why the word transition was kind of chosen. So both gradualist and then kind of rapid. And I think that goes to some of what I'm thinking I'm hearing in, in, in the slight debates between the different panelists. Um, and so one could say, you know, some literature on conversion experiences in relation to narratives, to take Chris's point, uh, that to some extent, it's often not the case that having a narrative and hearing a narrative, I then switch to the narrative. It's much more that there will be a series of other things that suddenly cause resonance with the new narrative and dissonance with the existing narrative. And so it's about those conditions in which suddenly I am professing a certain worldview and it is made apparent to me, which might not be an explicitly educational activity. It's made explicit to me that I am not, I'm in dissonance with the things that I purport to believe. And that cognitive dissonance is, is a prompt for psychological change at a personal level. Uh, it, it's also actually, by the way, uh, something that causes people to react quite badly and try to really uh, hold on to the existing narratives fiercely by putting guns on their back and walking into the Michigan Parliament as is occurring right now with the idiots uh, in the United States and their Second Amendment. But um, nevertheless, you know, so there's that dissonance is something. And as a result, one would say that transition, even if it is large structural change in terms of structural agency debate or narrative change, uh, it's the recognition of the role of these other perturbations, these other kind of uh, dissonances as a cause for change. Or, or to put it another way, if, you know, if the argument is that one, uh, you know, by Leon, that, that one needs to um, see existing structures, that there's a kind of Brechtian moment of kind of recognizing the, the genealogy of the current archeology span that we are kind of, that kind of history of the present in the Foucauldian way. It's really necessary to have a sudden consciousness of the landscape. The question is, how does one, how does one get that? It would be great if it was turn up to a professorial lecture and then walk out with your scales off your eyes. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, most of my theory of change uh, involves that bogus hypothesis, which is not true. So what actually happens, I think, often is that in that Brechtian way, you need to kind of stage, I'm mixing my metaphors, academic metaphors here, but breaching experiments, you know, uh, sort of Garfinkelian moments in which you can suddenly see that the normal has been constructed and it has a history and that it's not natural. And those are really quite, um, really quite everyday kind of experiences, moments in which, you know, things are dissonant and don't work. 
So again, I think it's really important to say that transition has to have these design perturbations and that some of them are critical. Some of them are critical interventions that cause a sudden uh, um, uh, dissonance or they're opportunistic in that there is a fracture in the landscape because uh, a virus is wandering around and a whole people are wondering what's going on. And it's a great moment to then maybe get a professorial lecture on you know, the Foucauldian structures of the, of the present. And you can only really hear it then, not just because you've got time, but because you're suddenly receptive to, as Bruno Latour says, oh my goodness, there's a stop button. I didn't know there was a stop button. Uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher told us there is no alternative and now we find there is a stop button. So, so you can opportunistically use those. And the last, I think, to really draw attention to, de to design, the other way that design functions that's the, the critical role, kind of exposing structure, finding agency. The reverse is, is an old um, aspect from Marxist theories of change, which is prefigurative politics. So prefigurative politics is that it is necessary to struggle to live now in this paradigm in a way that models some, not all, because partly you need to discover them and will only know them when you're in that paradigm, but the ones you can know now to kind of struggle and make them and sustain them as resistant in a bounded protected niche, which might be a small commune, uh, you know, it might be the party, it might be revolutionary politics, it, it might be a local ge geography, but it's really important to sort of struggle with that attempt to prefigure the system that you are trying to move towards. And so in that way, design actions can be activist critical revelations of existing paradigms, and they can be prefigurations of something like what you want to get to. These aren't utopias, because there's a recognition that the vision you have from this system of what you want to move to will actually be a product of this system. Whatever you put up is really desirable. If you can think it and even desire it, it's probably still part of this system. But what you can do is try and find these transitional, you know, second horizon is another kind of metaphor, these transitional practices which you try to prefigure and, and create as niches and sustain. So that might be something like, you know, struggling to sustain a cooperative, uh, a member-owned cooperative, a worker-contributing cooperative. It could be as large as the Parkside Food Co-op with uh, 17,000 members. It could be a small local organics uh, kind of uh, cooperative. Uh, it could be a housing cooperative. You know, just trying to sustain these moments of deliberative democracy about some aspect of living and, uh, and hold on to that within capitalism. So kind of cooperatives are this interesting pocket and they become really interesting and important in moments of fracture like a virus or in moments of fracture like a, a fire, a bushfire and they become prefigurative of a kind of world that might be more based on commons and, and localist bioregionalism and, and deliberative democracy. So I think that's the role that design can play by materializing some of these narratives and structures uh, on both sides of the transition. Thank you, Cameron. Yeah, it's, it's been very exciting to hear about all these possibilities for society kind of transformations. There are some clear overlaps but I wanted to ask all of our panelists if they could summarize in one sentence 
how could we integrate these different theories of change in, in transformation processes and focusing on kind of practice-based transformation. So, so to our change practitioners out there, how can we actually try to integrate these different perspectives? I'll jump in and, and say uh, two things. So the first is, um, you know, I can cheat and say that the integrative practice is designed insofar as it materializes. So whatever it else is your theory of change, you're going to have to kind of materialize and prefigure it and organize. And that is a design practice. So it's kind of the rude colonialist uh, way of answering the question and say design is the common entity because you're all, whatever your viewpoints, you're going to have to somehow materialize and organize uh, and realize them. Uh, I think my second answer is uh, we don't necessarily want to uh, all be on the same page. Um, and so I would point to work that Juan is, is currently exploring in his PhD, so particularly kind of Escobar's uh, reversal kind of approach, um, trying to get away from a one world world, uh, trying to think about, uh, you know, uh, regional perspectives that are loosely coupled and may even be intention. Um, and to recognize that in fact, the one world world is already multiple narratives, multiple habits, multiple structures. One of, the, one of the tools that capitalism has used is to convince us that it is all encompassing when in fact it's not. So uh, I would kind of answer rudely in both ways. Design is the answer, rude. Secondly, I wouldn't answer the question, let's be uh, uh, different, differons. <laughs> I tentatively agree, at least with the second answer, um, because yeah, I think that there's a real there's a risk in trying to integrate these um, approaches that you lose what what's valuable about them. And if if as I said earlier, we are trying to change everything, then we need many different strategies simultaneously in parallel. And and it's just up to people to choose which of those they want to particularly work on. Um, I think the, the, I'm less familiar with design and more familiar with the um, sustainability transitions literature. And I guess the, the idea of the multi-level perspective and the idea of niches is, is somewhat integrative because with all of these different theories of change, you need to create protected spaces, niches where you can explore these ideas. And so when Cameron was talking about, um, uh, you know, cooperatives, that you know, starting to build the new economy in the shell of the old economy in spaces where that's possible so that when crises like this come along, it's there to move into the Overton window or the Overton greenhouse, as Juan was talking about before. Um, if, it's, if, it's if it's a narrative theory of change, it's creating niches where those narratives can be explored and propagated and developed. Um, if it's transformative learning and creating cognitive dissonance and um, helping people to work with that dissonance in a positive way, then, you know, there's niches where you can create transformative learning experiences for people. And if it's um, about social practices and social justice, there's, there's places where you can experiment with new practices and what that might look like. So um, in the work we do at the forum, this, the idea of, of radical action and learning encompasses all of these kind of initiatives and trying lots of different things in a transformation system, evaluating them, learning from them, trying other things that build on that. 
So there's, there's space in that, I think, for all of the theories of change that we've talked about. Lynn, do you want? Yeah, so um, one, <laughs> all right then. So I think if it is just about one, then um, despite everything that I say about education, I still believe that education is the pillar for change. And um, it is the pillar for change, so how do we do that? Um, I was just sort of kind of reading the, the chat box here and somebody's actually mentioned it. Is that the idea of human-centered? Um, education and that is in education we are teaching students about the value of humans and the impacts whatever those impacts of the economy of politics whatever on from a human perspective so that's what I mean by human-centered um, uh, I also think that the idea of global citizenship is important here and I want to clarify that because sometimes we hear the word global citizenship but it's really underscored by the idea of globalization in the context of you know market-based things so global citizenship here I'm referring to the idea of thinking about others so you know lend a helping hand kind of things and we teach students that so you know at the at the primary level um, it could be about, you know, the community at large, you know, sustainable in terms of development, etc. The environment at the university's level, it could be incorporating service learning, citizenship activities into their curriculum. Um, so, you know, focusing more around the idea of the, the person, the human and the community and the, and the community also embraces the idea of the environment and what we do you know the the, the natural resources um not just the physical resources yeah so um and just one last thing and that is the personal diplomacy and this is where you know the idea of individual agency but that with that um we have to exert you know some kind of diplomacy and that is thinking beyond the individual thinking beyond what is my interest or best interest for me and thinking about the others so um yeah thank you and thank you to all of our panelists we had some more questions but uh I guess we don't have much time, so we'll move forward to our audience questions. Kieran, I don't know if you have some of them ready. I guess we have time for two or three questions. Yeah, um, thanks for the questions and to the panelists as well. Um, we've got two questions that are around a similar kind of topic, um, around beauty and aesthetics. Um, so Paul Gleason is deeply interested in hearing thoughts and wisdom on the transformative possibility of beauty and art, particularly at this moment. Um, Samuel Wern would like to hear what the panelists think about aesthetics and its role in narratives, power and change, something that perhaps sits across all of their domains and interests. What values do they represent and who designs them and holds structural power over them? And what do you think agents and aesthetics might offer? I, uh, I saw those questions and was thinking a little, so if you don't mind, I'll jump in. Um, uh, I'm a, you know, was, was a student of the Nazi, uh, Martin Heidegger, uh, not literally, but kind of uh, spent some time with that. And um, despite being a Nazi, which is a difficult thing to say, though these days it seems to be quite fashionable to say, so maybe I can get away with it again. Um, 
you know, he spent a lot of time trying to find moods that seem to open onto disclosure of, of kind of structures. He was interested in ontological structures. And, and there are various moods that he kind of describes that are moments at which one is sort of sensing being rather than just focused only on beings. And so the early one was kind of the anxiety before death, which translates into a kind of anxiety before nothingness, one noticing thingness in, in, the, in the face of nothingness. Later on, a kind of discussion around boredom, uh, which I think is kind of interesting to think about these days these moments at which you suddenly sense the presence of time. Um, and, you know, one of the primary ones that philosophy has is awe, moments of, of kind of being awestruck uh, and questioning uh, before some kind of experience. And that is often the aesthetic experience. And so I think there's a long tradition of thinking that uh, things that break through the normal of the landscape are these kind of eruptions of the presence of something sometimes aided by an artist uh, drawing attention to these things. And, and these can be revelatory. So yeah, I would certainly, I would certainly agree with that. And I think I would add to it, Elaine Scarry wrote a beautiful book called on, on being in the just and, and talks about beauty having this kind of interesting fragility that when one witnesses it, you immediately want to share it with somebody. Like you see a good sunset and you're at a bus stop in the good old days when we were doing that sort of thing. And, and you would, feel the need to kind of turn to someone and say, look at that, look at that. And yet on the other hand, you kind of feel like it needs protecting. You, you, so, so there's a, a desire to own the beautiful and there's a desire to put it in the museum and, and, and kind of preserve it. And she, she talks about that kind of phenomenological experience in front of it. Um, and so I, again, I think that protective sense is a lot behind wilderness aesthetics and, and, and beauty in that kind of way. However, I would just say one counterpoint just to finish the answer. So yes, I think it can be important. Um, but of course, uh, beauty is, you know, in a Bourdieuian way, very, very strictly cultural. Uh, and it comes with particular things. And I think one of the things we need to understand at the moment is how much of the current system is held in place by a bunch of people who get an immense amount of pleasure from it. Um, and I think if you, if you just kind of look at evil corporate people, uh, you know, who supposedly we should all dislike, it, it's important to try every now and then and imagine that their motivations don't come from evil, but come from the enormous sense of satisfaction of having something to do at work, of having like, again, secured some resources that they can now mobilize and turn into something else. They're making value, you know, the, the kind of aesthetic pleasure of being a startup growth hacking and just going through the roof. Um, you know, this is, this is not different from standing in front of, uh, you know, an amazing sunset or, 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 or seeing, you know, some, some great moment of, of natural eruption. And just as beauty in nature cause, may cause one to want to protect it, so the kind of passion and drive that might come from those types of activities, those types of work practices, cause people to want to preserve them and, and protect them. And those become really strong holders in place of the current paradigm. So it's, it's always important to recognize that, that pleasure is a strong motivator. And there's a lot of people who are not getting perverse pleasure. They're getting actual sense of accomplishment and contribution and the creation of value and the sharing of value with other people, even if they also profit from it, that that's a strong driver for holding things in place. So I'm skeptical as well.
I just want to follow on a little bit on that point about empathy with um, those who you could otherwise see as the enemy um, that are propping up the the current system. And it's it's a practice that I try and engage in as well. You're trying to see where where Trump is coming from, or where Andrew Bolt is coming from, or what what is it that um, is in somebody's worldview and the story that they have about how, what what's normally in the world that leads them to act in a way that we might see as quite destructive. And it's, it teaches you that um, it, it's very rare that the people propping up the system are, are evil as such. They're just, they're coming from a particular perspective where they, as, as Cameron said, they're getting value out of what they're doing and it makes a lot of sense to them. They might think that they're doing a very good thing. And so trying to understand those motivations, it, it's, it's important politically because, you know, when, we get blindsided by something like Trump getting elected, it means that you haven't been understanding the motivations of voters out there that um, saw him as being a good solution. Um, and so the more you can try and understand those other perspectives, you can um, start to build better political strategies. And I think um, art and aesthetics can be a way to help us see those other perspectives sometimes. Um, it can be a, a sort of letting a, a bit of light in from other worlds that uh, can help us to be a little bit more open to, to working with those other worlds and, and finding ways that are going to be inclusive. And I, I guess the other thing to say is that um, going back to the idea of transformative learning and, and cognitive dissonance, that artists and um, creative practitioners, experiences in music and so on, those are those um, non-rational forms of expression are often a way into transformative experiences rather than, hey, let's design a, a, a great narrative and, and have all the, the good things in it that we think rationally should, should make it work. It, it's, it's being blindsided by something um, in a piece of artwork that can often be one of the triggers for that shift. So, you know, in the, in the work we're doing with the forum, we're, we're trying very hard to involve artists and creative practitioners in the process of expressing narratives. And, and they bring very different um, uh, ways of approaching that to, to what we as focused on sustainability change might be bringing. Leanne, do you have any um, thoughts that you'd like to add to that? Yeah, sure. So on the issue of aesthetics, so I just want to say that um, I don't know whether any of you have heard of Martha Nussbaum's and her 10 capabilities. Um, aesthetics is actually one of them. So her idea of capabilities is, um, is almost a kind of like an Aristotle sense of, you know, these are the things that we should have as human beings. Um, you know, the right to educate, the right to speak and that kind of things. And aesthetics is one of them. And her sort of... Um, underpinning um, reasoning for that is the, you know, from a human rights perspective, is the right for us to enjoy life and you enjoy art and beauty as such. So, but I think there is, um, there is some generative thought uh, in relation to aesthetics in terms of the multiple perspectives or the plurality of perspectives that can be or can locate us as individuals within the collective 
um, as opposed to just a self kind of expression that I think uh, Martha Nussbaum is kind of basing her thoughts around aesthetics on. And so the power of aesthetics for me is about to what extent does individual expressions of aesthetics um, and people's response to those individual expressions of aesthetics can contribute to the collective or the common good. Um, and here I want to say something about, you know, I think there was a comment about, okay, um, I talk about the need to be understanding or conscious of the geniality of power relations, perhaps through the aesthetics, right, through art or through stories or through movies um, and through plays and through music that we can see those moments. You know, you watch, for example, a dystopian movie, for example, a dystopian movie is all about showing or making explicit the power relations, you know, and the difference, the differential between, you know, people at the top and people at the bottom. So it's kind of those moments that you see through art um, that it can, you know, perhaps, you know, bring you to that consciousness that you may otherwise not realizing that and gives you that kind of subjectivity. So I see the power in aesthetics in that way. I do agree that, you know, aesthetics, it depends on how it is being um, deliberated, can also be a form of dominance. So why is it that certain types of movies or certain types of stories are getting airplay compared to others? So again, it's, you know, there's inequality um, and in sort of the lack of plurality of voices. And we need to also question that rather than just assume that certain stories or certain movies are, you know, projected as the dominant. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, thanks, Leanne. Um, Juan, do, do we have time for another question? If our panelists can say uh, uh, five minutes more, 10 minutes more. Okay. Um, similar to what you're talking about, aesthetics, enlarging the scope or shining a light on things that might not otherwise have light shined on. Um, Tani K has a question with relation to humane education. So is there a place for humane education and what is the future of humane education? Um, and to clarify this term, uh, Tani says, that this is towards encouraging empathy and sensitivity towards animals and on a broader scale to the environment. Um, quite niche at the moment, but given the current crisis, could schools and society in more, more general be receptive to such a concept? So I'll say something about that. Um, Okay, so <laughs> I've just written a paper on exactly that very same topic. And in that paper, I kind of, I use the Australian landscape or the Australian curriculum as a way to um, position the paradox of humane education or rather education for SDT in the context of the Australian education. So I'm talking about general education here, not university education. And so my argument is this, is that teachers or educators live in a world of competing values. On the one hand, we are, or teachers or educators, are, are um, being pushed or being pressured on training students for a very individualistic kind of betterment 
right, in order to get jobs and develop human capital and all of that kind of things. At the same time, there is a stream of curriculum or cross-curriculum subject that flows across the general education curriculum, and that is sustainability. But the reality is it is very difficult for teachers to be able to teach that without a having adequate training about what that actually means. If you look at the teacher education curriculum at universities, um, and I used to work in that space, there is nothing on that. You know, um, you can say climate science has been taught, but it's, it's been taught in the sense of scientific um, uh, climate. Uh, that is very different to the kind of humane education and that is about how we value the natural resources as if it is part of our nature. So there is competing agenda and competing values, not to mention the institutional structure of the education systems that kind of put pressure on teachers to deliver job skills, you know, test scores, performance and that kind of thing that then do away with the space that they can actually engage in humane education. So I'm saying that there is a politics of rights, um, the rights of the individual versus the rights of the community and educators in the Australian curriculum is, you know, living, living that politics of rights. Um, yeah. So I agree with you in the point that it is very, it's, well, it's, it's not niche, but it's the fact that in some way the curriculum as a rhetoric, as a narrative, um, is is that's all it is, it's rhetoric, right? It's lip service to what um, education for SDG could be like. And that rhetoric is because the system itself is based on a set of neoliberal and managerial culture that then creates this, you know, politics of rights and pressure on the teachers to do what they think is right. Thanks. Um, and I suppose the question is, framed in such a way that it could focus on education, but also how is society more receptive at this time to enlightening the scope, to considering um, a, a wider circle of empathy to animals and environment? Um, if Cameron and Chris want to jump in, um, now's a good time. So I just, uh, I'm not sure I, I believe this, but I'll just draw attention to it because I kind of think it's really uh, interesting, which is terror management theory, which is a kind of social psychology argument that um, when confronted with evidence of your own finitude, uh, when, when confronted with, with uh, the possibility of dying, um, the argument is that psychologically one turns to uh, preserving a legacy which may be genetic or mimetic, and that that tends to also um, mean preserving, uh, you know, your type, preserving your community. And so terror management theory is the argument that when confronted with death, people recoil to the preservation of their own type. And so it's a kind of theory that would explain the agency of terrorism in terms of causing people to, to go uh, to their to their own in defensive and, and bad ways. And there are some really ridiculous studies behind it. Uh, you know, the capacity to kind of get uh, doctors to diagnose people of foreign cultures when they've been alerted to their own upcoming death apparently goes down. So they become worse doctors when there's all these kind of studies. 
So I think it's all should be taken with a grain of salt. But it's, uh, I just mention it because it's a way of kind of saying that in these conditions in which um, there is a hope that exposure to finitude and collective, the necessity for collective agent and, and precaution, the fact that if this works, it will always feel like an overreaction. You know, all these kind of things um, look to the good side. Uh, and I think it's important to recognise how much there might be possibilities of, of not just the reinstatement of the economy, um, but, but in fact, even worse kind of tribalisms that occur when, when there's a generic kind of sense of, of threat in the air. So I'm not seeing that, you know, apart from Team Australia, which just makes me want to puke, but um, yeah. Um, maybe a, if we've got time, a very quick addition is, I guess if you, um, look at some of the transformative learning literature and, and work in developmental psychology, the, the um, capacity to have empathy for um, beings that are further removed from your own immediate self and circle is something that is, it grows over time if you go through an a, um, ongoing developmental process. I'm not sure that it's something that you can teach in terms of, you know, you have a, a humane education session about the importance of empathy for, for animals and of, or even for people outside your country in other parts of the world, and people will come out of that session and go, oh, I've, got, I've, I've now got that. Um, I think it's more about teaching the, the skills to, um, of critical reflection, um, the kind of, kind of skills that can underpin an ongoing learning journey where you're circle of care may start to over time continually expand to, to take in more and more um, other people, other, other um, beings, other living things. So that's, that's more about teaching people the, um, to question, to, to think critically, to, to dig deeper into receive wisdom, to, to um, not take fake news as, as given. Um, you know, the kind of skills that are, are going to serve them through their life to keep going through this learning journey, which hopefully will at some point will continue to increase their empathy over time. Um, so I, I'd, I'd be focused a little bit more on building those, those longer term skills than thinking we can teach empathy um, in a classroom setting. Thanks so much for all the wise words. Um, one, I think you might have some closing thought remarks. Yes, it's, uh, thank you to our panelists for sharing their perspectives on change making. They were enlightening, and I guess there's a lot to talk about you know, in future encounters. Um, and thank you all for participating in this event. This is the first time that we have this, this encounter, and it's uh, an effort to kickstart uh, this collaborative network of uh, global transformation. So ideally, uh, if you can go to your local context and start experimenting with these theories of change and we can then come back and have conversations around your experiences to, to strengthen these change possibilities uh, around the world. Uh, we...